Well, today we'll be looking very closely at the Apostle Paul, as we'll do for uh, these next few weeks as we're in the first chapter of Romans. And we'll just take a little bit of his biography every week. And we're going to look more closely at exactly what is the gospel by identifying a couple of key terms and giving us some, some working definitions so that as you hear me and hear the book of Romans talk about the gospel, you know what I'm talking about. Now, it's extremely important that we get this biographical information about Paul as we go along, not just because that if you're reading a book, a letter written by somebody, you should know about them and their audience. That's, of course, important because how are you going to know what something means if you don't know anything about who wrote it and who it's written to? Obviously, you got to know that stuff. Or you're just not going not to know the meaning of what you're talking about. And so we're going to be bringing that out. You wouldn't remember it. If I dumped all that on you in one or two messages, you wouldn't remember it. So I'm just going to shake it on as we go along. Just going to shake on the, the biographical information about the Romans and about Paul as we move along. But it's critical especially for Paul. I mean, unusually uniquely important for Paul because of verse 1, because he says he's a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. As you look at the story of Paul, and you see it in the book of Acts primarily, but you could also pick up on some biographical information about him and his missionary journeys that he did as he writes the occasional letters, the epistles that you find in the New Testament, you'll find out information about him personally in each one of those. Now, was he just kind of stuck up? I mean, like, could he not talk about God and stuff without talking about himself? I mean, surely that's somebody who has a little bit too much pride, who just can't even write a little short letter to somebody about Jesus without talking about himself. He's got problems, right? And admittedly, there are some ministers out there that have some problems who make their messages more about them than about the Lord. But in this case, I want to argue on behalf of my friend Paul here because he's been set apart by Jesus Christ in a way that's different than us. Because as you look at the history of his life, truly, it's not just his story, it's God's story. Because when Jesus comes to him and kicks him off of his donkey and knocks him into the dirt and leaves him laying there blind on the ground, his life suddenly becomes a metaphor. His life suddenly becomes a metaphor for the blindness of the people of God of that time and everything that he experiences from that point onward, if you take it and lay it right alongside the life of Jesus Christ and what he experienced, there are a lot of similarities. I don't think it's an accident. I don't think Luke, who, by the way, the one who wrote the book of Acts, also wrote the book of Luke, the one who wrote the story of Paul's life, also wrote the story of 
Jesus' life. You take those two books and lay them on top of each other and you will see some fascinating overlap between the kinds of things that Jesus experienced and the kind of things that Paul experienced. Not an accident. It's because Paul was set aside to portray, to live out the gospel in a unique way. He's kind of like the book that, 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 that was originally a book that got made into a movie. Paul is the movie. <laughs> His life is the, the movie that, that goes along with the Gospels. As his life, an ordinary guy like us, don't get me wrong, but he is especially set aside with the footprint of Jesus as Jesus knocks him off of his saddle onto the ground, blinding him. And when those blinders fall off, he is on a journey for the rest of his life until he faces the same kind of death that Jesus did, martyrdom at the hands of Romans. We're in the first part of our series on Romans, and so it's not only important that we learn about the gospel and the data and the doctrine here, but we need to know more about Paul. And as we look at our series on Romans, as I mentioned last week, we're in Romans 1 through 4 right now, which reveals exactly what God's righteousness is and what it is not. The second section is Romans 5 through 8, where Paul describes the new identity that those who have been made righteous by faith in Christ experience. Romans 9 through 11, Paul explains how this gift of righteousness fulfills the promises that God made to Israel fully and finally. And then in Romans 12 through 16, Paul shows how the church of those united in Christ live out their faith in a sinful world and a maturing church. That's what's going on in the book of Romans, and we're in the first section. How many of you have were, went through Ken Sandy's Peacemaker course? How many of you have been through that? A lot of you who are here when this church was founded went through it because this church went through that as a part of its early life. It's something that, that, that was done that, that Leonard Liu did at the very beginning was get that moving through in the DNA of this church because he understood, as everybody understands, that disunity is a real problem in the church. And you may be all unified right now. Everybody gets together. You're meeting in a new building. You're in that new church. It even smells like a new church. It's, it's all perfect. But then things can happen where people stop agreeing about things. There starts to be conflict. And you have to know how to resolve that conflict or else it festers and grows. And so your previous pastor understood that. And he brought that message into this congregation. And it has resulted with benefits. You guys have had a, a pretty peaceful history up until me. And so this is good. Now... Paul's preaching created a disruption, a disruption that he talks about, that he preaches what he summarizes as Christ and him crucified. And that causes a division between Jews and Gentiles. And so as he preaches Christ and him crucified, he's trying to find a way in doing that 
to do so in such a way that doesn't bring disunity. Because there's a way to say the truth in a way that brings disunity, right? And we don't want to do that. We don't want to say the truth and bring disunity at the same time. There are ways to be careful about how we say the truth. And there are ways to be careless. And we Calvinists have some things to apologize about concerning careless talk about things like predestination and other topics like that, which can come across very harsh and very ugly in some ways. And we have to be careful as we talk about that stuff. The book of Romans is God is, is Paul figuring out how am I going to talk about this message I've got in a way that brings unity rather than division. Any other message would have brought more division, not less division, as people would focus on secondary issues or on genetics, on what kind of family you're from, and that means I'm a part of God's chosen people and you're not, or on class and culture or liturgy. Well, we're going to keep the style of worship that we see in the synagogues because we believe the Lord has... That kind of stuff will split a church like that. And Paul knew that, and that's why you don't see a lot of liturgical instruction in the New Testament. You've got a little section in 1 Corinthians 14, that's about it. And that's kind of frustrating. But Paul knew that if he gave a bunch of instructions about that, it would cause division. So he stayed focused on the main thing. Paul was a Pharisee. As we think about Paul today and who he was, he was defined by this religious political affiliation as being a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were more or less kind of the Republicans of their time. More or less, they stood up for keeping things the same, honoring what we've done in the past they wanted to maintain their cultural identity. They wanted to have certain rules that applied in the worship service and in their uh, synagogues. They made sure that anybody who claimed to be a rabbi went through certain hoops to jump through. You couldn't just say, the Lord made me a rabbi. You had to go through certain passages and memorize certain things and study under certain rabbis to do that. Paul was a rule keeper. He liked the law. He wanted to keep it. And he himself, uh, not even bragging, said, if you wanted to find somebody who keeps the law, I kept the law as well as it could be kept. So he wasn't just a, a Pharisee that was a casual Pharisee. He was a card-carrying Pharisee that would do whatever they wanted. For instance, go out and kill some Christians. Paul says, me, me, I'm good, I'll do that. I'm the biggest, baddest Pharisee there is. I'm the, the Clint Eastwood of Pharisees. I will go and do whatever needs to be done on account of the Pharisees. That's how in he was. Having said that, some people, sometimes the Pharisees get a bad rap. People will say that the Pharisees didn't believe in, in, in salvation by grace or something like that. 
They certainly did believe in, in salvation by faith because they believed in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, you don't have to turn there, but Abraham, it, it, God is making a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, 17. And here in chapter 15, he's talking to him and he describes all the blessings of being in covenant with him. And then in verse 6, it says, And he, Abraham, believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's faith. And righteousness, that's belief leading to righteousness. And Paul believed that. But Judaism had become so corrupt, and that included the Pharisees, that you practically had to become Jewish to be saved. Now, if you reminded them, <clears throat> Abraham wasn't Jewish when this happened. Abraham, this was before all of that. They would get real testy with you. Paul trusted in faith, but he didn't trust in faith alone to get him to heaven. Along with the rest of the Pharisees, they had numerous ordinances and baptisms and rules that you had to follow or else you were dirt to them and you were dirt to God. So when God came along and kicked Paul into the dirt, blinding him such that he could never serve in any kind of priestly way again. Paul's world was just shaken up like a snow globe. He, it would be three days later, laying on a bed till he came to know in a saving way the resurrected and living Christ after lying in bed, sick and blind and confused, God sent someone to him. Turn to Acts chapter 9. Turn to Acts 9 to see this story of Paul's conversion. There are events that lead up to people being born again. And some of those events kind of look like they were born again. But we get a pretty precise moment here in Acts 9 where Ananias, verse 17, departed because he just had this vision that told him to go witness to this big murdering Pharisee because people don't do that unless God tells them to very specifically. So Ananias departed and entered the house, the house where Paul was sick, and laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul... The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. He rose, was baptized, took food and was strengthened. It was at that moment that the healing hand of God was upon him but it was also a hand that would shape him, that would reshape him into a different kind of life where instead of going out to kill and murder and end Christianity, he would now go out and preach it and 
promote it and would become subject to the same kinds of persecution that he had been doing just a few days before. It was at that point that Paul was delivered and reshaped and filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice that language, filled with the Holy Spirit. It speaks of his emptiness. It speaks of his great emptiness that while he was very religious, while he was very determined, very sincere, so sincere he would get violent with you over his religious convictions, the language of Luke here is that he had to be filled. Christian, churchgoer, you may be very zealous about your Calvinism, about your Reformed theology, about your Presbyterianism, but you too may need to be filled today. Don't let this day pass you by. You too can be filled with the Holy Spirit and born again today. Second thing that you see here in the text concerning his own conversion is that he is healed of his blindness. You may be very religious today. You may be awesome morally. You may not have done anything wrong in a year. Good for you. Thank you. We like having people like you in society and in our church. But you're blind. You don't see where you're going. You don't know where you're going. You're being good. Santa Claus doesn't bring you coal, but you're being nice. But in the end, you're blind. Don't go through life blind like that. If the Holy Spirit is revealing to you right now that, yeah, wait a second, I've been good, but I'm also walking around like a blind man, a blind woman, maybe today is the day of salvation for you. The second phrase we want to look at in verse 1 of Romans is he is set apart. That's what we just heard about. Paul got set apart. And the next thing we see is set apart for the gospel of God. Now, the gospel of God, gospel means good news. That's what the word means. And it has its source in God. He's the originator of that story, of that good news. The gospel is a message of good tidings, of comfort and joy from God. And it's a message that saves unbelievers and sanctifies believers. And it's all about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not a message about how, well, you believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then using that new power you get, you work your way to heaven. <laughs> Because that's the way a lot of people feel about it, is that the gospel is just like pouring some of that octane booster, you know, in your car, and it just makes you be able to work harder and work faster for your salvation. That's not what Paul's talking about here. I was watching a YouTube video last night. I, I've gone down a, a hole I shouldn't go down on YouTube, okay? 
It started with watching these videos of these people in the sovereign citizen movement get arrested. Oh, they are so entertaining. Okay? But then I started watching... Then I started watching... Uh, like famous people, uh, policemen, police chiefs, and things like that. Last night I started watching videos about them getting arrested for drunk driving and stuff like that. It's so entertaining and so disturbing. The last one I watched before I turned it off at 4 a.m. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. The last one I watched, though, last night, it was 9.30, was this woman who was um, a personality on television in Florida. She was, like, uh, she was like a newscaster. And they had her, she had been drinking, she was driving. And over and over, when they would try to get her to take a breathalyzer, walk the line, do her things, she would scream out, I'm a good person! I'm a good person! She may be a good person, except for that situation. Because there, but for the grace of God, goes some of us. Some of of us have drank too much and and drove before. And and if we'd have been stopped, we'd have been in trouble. So you don't want to be judgy about that kind of stuff. But her answer, I'm a good person, it shows that that's kind of our default. That's often our default, is bad things shouldn't be happening to me. I'm a good person. But the reality of this is, if you're a good person, you don't need Jesus. (laughs) You don't need him. You just need God to be a, a, a good judge, because a good judge would never find a good person guilty and send them to hell. I mean, Right? I mean, would any good judge convict somebody of a crime that they weren't guilty of and punish them for that? Would the magistrate do that? No. We can define our goodness by the law, as Paul did here in Romans. Or we can define our goodness by our own standards, our own very flexible standards. Or we can define it by the standards of the culture, of what it means to be good in the culture. My, my, people who are, I'm talking to people who are my age now, 35. Haven't the standards in our culture about what it means to be a good person changed dramatically in the last 10 or 15 years? If you're, I mean, imagine when we were growing up, what it meant to be a good person. There were certain cultural values you had to follow and reflect. But if you reflect the cultural values today to be a good person, your mama and your daddy would have slapped you for being that person. Right? Notice how the standards of of. Of, of societal righteousness have changed dramatically, not reversing themselves quite, but it's been a dramatic change where for me to go back in time with a modern good person, 
their mom and daddy would have spanked them for doing and saying the kind of things they do and say today. And moreover, we believe in a system of work that when we do good things, that when we do either obey the law, obey our mom and dad, uh, obey the cultural values that are around us, well, we deserve then to be treated in a certain day. I work, I get rewarded. Nothing could be more American than that. No Christian is opposed to doing good works, but good works doesn't make you a Christian. Being a good and nice person doesn't make you saved all by itself. I say that because Titus chapter 3, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, "...not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us." The real reason that we can't do enough good works to gain merit before God is that we're, we're sinners. We're separated from God. Even my best works fall short of what God requires, which is perfection. We get in our mind that Jesus died for our sins, and that is true. But he also died for your good works. That is, the good works that you do, that you think by doing them, you will stack up higher and higher and higher, and eventually they will merit God's love towards you. Jesus died for your good works, too. The ones that you would use as a shield against His wrath on the day of judgment, they will fail you. Yeah, but okay. But how could God be against me being a good person? Let's say I stack up all my flawed obedience. It's kind of like having a bucket with holes in the bottom of it. If I fill that full of rocks, I know those rocks aren't perfectly going to fit in there. But eventually, if I put enough of them in there, eventually it'll stop water running out the bottom of that bucket, right? And then maybe if I put enough of my flawed obedience into this life, maybe God will recognize that. And eventually, I'll be good enough, right? Hmm. The problem is, is that when we commit evil actions, we're placed in a different category at that moment. We're... We move from being innocent to guilty. We move from being at war, not at war with God, to being at war with Him. We move from being not holy to holy. And because God is holy, He must judge sin. If He doesn't judge sin, He won't be God at all. So what is sin? Sin is an attitude of indifference to God that is characterized by active and passive rebellion against Him. We tend to think of sin being, oh, I got drunk. Or 
I uh, stole something. Okay, it's sin to get drunk and steal something, but the thoughts and the attitudes and the action and the indifference and the coldness of heart that happens before you ever get to there, that's sin. It's just happening up here. I'm not saying that getting drunk, committing murder, or being immoral isn't sin, but these are sins that result from prior attitudes, mindsets, beliefs, which are often far uglier than one act of immorality. Unsaved folks are alive physically, but they're spiritually dead before they know Jesus Christ and his life-giving freedom. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. You pull the plug of a lamp from its wall socket, it loses connection with that electric current and the light's going to go out. Man, because of sin, has broken fellowship with God and his spiritual light goes out. He needs to be plugged back into God. He needs to be spiritually connected to Him or else He'll stay dead, stay blind, and stay unable to please Him. It would be bad enough to just be powerless and spiritually dead, but also you face eternal judgment. Hebrews 9, 27. It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this judgment. And then Romans 1, 18, which we'll be getting to soon. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And that's the bad news. The bad news is that without Jesus Christ without submitting your life and your heart to Him, you're more than just in a predicament in this life, but in the world to come. The good news is the gospel, that God, that God has provided a way to solve your present and future sin problem. He sent Christ, the perfect and sinless Son, to come to sin, sinful men and women and boys and girls. John 3.16. Everyone who knows John 3.16, recite it with me right now. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Christ died for sinners. But God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so by believing in Christ and his promises, you can receive forgiveness from sin. Be declared right before God in a way that law-keeping and try-harding and posting uh, funny things on Facebook could never get you there. Acts 13 says, Brothers, listen, we are here to proclaim that through this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness for your sins. Everyone who believes in him is made right in God's sight, something the law of Moses could never do. 
And John 5, 24, He who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not be condemned for he has passed from death to life. That's the good news and it's just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. Trusting in the promises of Christ to save all who come to him and he will never cast you aside but keep you as his own. So how does this happen? How does the gospel work to justify you so that you become righteous? Well, first let me define a couple of terms. When we think of righteousness, that's the situation that you come to be in after you are justified. That is, if you go outside and you work all day on the Beery's farm and you are covered with hay and you're covered with various kinds of seeds and you're covered with who knows what else comes out of the Beery's farm, you are dirty. And you go in and you take off those muddy boots and you take off your dirty clothes and you get into the shower and you get clean. God's justification of sinners is what makes you clean and righteousness is a description of the glories of that new cleanliness that he has given you spiritually. Mark Deaver gives a good illustration uh, then of how you can't be justified and made righteous by the law and by our good deeds and he reminds us of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Early in the story, the main character named Christian, he feels the weight of his sin before God and he knows he needs to be justified. And so he sees Mount Sinai, which represents God's law, and he runs to it and he's going to climb it. And he's gonna, it's going to remove the weight of sin from his back if he makes it to the top. And so from a distance, the mountain looks pretty easy to climb. So he starts going. And he finds it's steeper than he thought it was, but that's okay. So he just keeps walking. He keeps walking. It's just getting steeper and steeper as he goes along. But he's got to make it, and he thinks he's almost there. He's walking, and all of a sudden he gets to a place where the mountain is no longer just like this. It's not like this, but it's curving over him. And it's at that moment that he realizes, I cannot be justified through the law. It's impossible for me to do it because the more I delve into God's law, the more you'll come to a deeper understanding of your sin. How many believers have found that to be true in your life? That the further you get into the Christian life, the more you understand your sinful nature and how you're estranged from God's law. You don't keep it. And so he despairs of the law, Christian does, and he finally turns away from trying to climb Mount Sinai and he sees a gate. And that gate is Christ. And we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. Only that way is the way to go to be saved. It's only when you despair of your good works, when you despair of being Presbyterian, when you despair of being 
a great person. It's only then that you turn away from that wretched journey of self-effort and you find Jesus Christ the gate that you may go through to receive salvation. So that's what's going on in the first section of Romans, verse 1. He's trying to help you to know more about who he is and his own situation and how God has transformed him by the gospel. And he's trying to help us understand, know more about what it looks like for us to be transformed by the gospel. God can be reconciled to us only through Christ's person and work. Only there can our sins be truly dealt with. Christ's atonement was good enough to pay the price of sin's penalty and we can be justified there and there alone. So my message to you today is, dear sinner, dear, dear sinner, stop struggling up the hill of Mount Sinai. Oh, if I'll just be a good wife or a good husband or a good sister or a good brother, then I can please God if I'll make good grades. If I... No. No. A thousand times no. Get off that hill of comparing yourself to others. Get off that hill of cultural righteousness because it will destroy you long before you have any hope of salvation. Come down from Mount Sinai and come to Christ. Let us pray. Here we are, Father, your people seated before you, some of us saints, some of us ain'ts. And we need, Father, for you to send your Holy Spirit today to make it real clear, real obvious what we need to do next. For some of us, it may be embarrassing because the people around us think we're Christians and they may have thought we were believers for 30 years. But we've realized today that we've been trusting in our own righteousness. Others may not be so difficult. People maybe could have guessed that we weren't Christians. And we need to own up to the fact that we need Jesus Christ and everything He promises those who come to Him that we need all of His mercy or we are doomed. Make the pathway clear today, Father. Bring those who need to be filled with your spirit and have their blindness, their spiritual blindness healed, bring them to yourself today so that they may be rejoicing on this Lord's day in a way that they never have before. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let us sing and rejoice.